Good Sunday morning. This is the Arts Section. I'm your host, Gary Zydek. Welcome to WDCB's Arts and Culture Magazine. Every week we spotlight creative people, events, and ideas in the Chicago area arts community while also fostering broader discussions on music, film, theater, and other creative endeavors. Support for the Arts Section comes from the League of Chicago Theaters. On today's program, I'll catch up with world-renowned choreographer Christopher Wielden to talk about The Nutcracker and his Tony Award-winning production of MJ the Musical, which is coming to Chicago next summer. The dueling critics Carrie Reed and Jonathan Abarbanel will join me to review a world premiere comedy unlike anything currently playing right now. Later in the show, I'll take you with on my visit to a place called the Slumu Institute. Platinum-selling saxophonist Dave Coz will join me from the road to talk about his holiday tour. And I talked to actor Max Greenfield about a children's book he authored. And that's all coming up. Thanks for making some time for Arts and Culture this morning. It's hard to believe it's been six years since acclaimed choreographer Christopher Wielden reimagined the Joffrey Ballet's holiday staple, The Nutcracker. The world-renowned dance maker was tapped to create a new vision for the ballet company's annual holiday production. Wielden delivered a bright, ambitious program set during the 1893 World's Fair. The Joffrey has changed performance venues in the intervening years, moving to the Lyric Opera House last year after years at the Auditorium Theater. Wielden was back in Chicago this week to fine-tune certain elements of the program. I caught up with him at Joffrey Tower to discuss his memories of creating this nutcracker and to talk about one of his other award-winning projects, which will be coming to Chicago next summer, his Tony Award-winning production exploring the artistry of Michael Jackson. So what brings you back to Chicago? Are you adjusting certain elements of this nutcracker? This will be the first year that I see the production at the Lyric because they moved uh, last year, I think, was the first year. Um, the, the original plan was the year of the pandemic um, and I was going to come down and sort of help with the move, but obviously that didn't happen. Um, and this, this past winter, I was working on a musical in New York, so I wasn't able to actually to come up for the move. So it'll, tomorrow will be the first time that I see it in its new setting, which will, you know, I, I think be exciting um, and uh, uh, you know we might make a few technical changes between between tomorrow and the opening on Saturday but we'll we'll have to see. As I remember the auditorium theater has some like very uh, site-specific architecture that kind of played into the production yeah. so does that change in the new home? I, I, th- I think so I mean again having not actually been in there and seen the space myself yet um, it's hard to know kind of what what changes will need to be made but um, but yeah we'll, we'll see we'll see how that works. It was a pretty big thing to change the the Nutcracker here at the Joffrey what do you remember about that time period when you were working on this? Yeah I mean listen the the Joffrey Ballet already had a, a I think a beloved production of the Nutcracker um, that was perhaps from sort of the production value standpoint on its last legs and I think the company was sort of faced with this dilemma do we just revive the old one and make spend money on sort of revitalizing the old production or, or do we look to a new nutcracker and that's that's uh, fortunately for me that's where where the decision landed and uh, so they came to me and I remember feeling 
quite a lot of pressure just because uh, the Robert Joffrey production had been sort of iconic in a sense. Um, but I also was excited that, that they wanted to kind of move forward. And, you know, the idea of making a Chicago very, uh, a Nutcracker very specific to the city and setting it at the World's Fair um, was something that really, really interested in, interested me and I think has, has really paid off because it, it creates, in some ways, a kind of added sense of, of kind of Chicago's civic pride, I think, around, around this production. This production ties into the World's Fair. So, did you do some research into the city's history? Yeah, I mean, one of it's interesting when you know when um, the company here came to me, approached me to do this production. One of my favorite books is *Devil in the White City*, which, of course, is all you know set in and around the construction of the World's Fair. And so, um, so I, I, the first thing I did was went I went back to that book and read it. And of course, you know, you, n- nobody wants to associate a serial killer with the Nutcracker, <laughs> so we so we eliminated that element of the story. But you know, all of the just the fascinating history, the the politics of the city actually getting the World's Fair, and then um, just the, cons- the the you know the, the the struggles around the construction and and Olmsted and Burnham and the architects and just just really a fascinating part of the city's history to kind of dive into and then of course all the visual elements of the fair um, uh, some great old photographs of the fairgrounds and of the of the different pavilions and so there was lots to draw from if you're just tuning in you're listening to the art section I'm Gary Zydek and I'm talking with award-winning choreographer Christopher Wielden Another big project that's under your belt is your Broadway production, MJ the Musical. It's coming to Chicago the summer of 2023. This is uh, very highly regarded. It won some Tony Awards. You won another Tony for Best Choreographer. Before we dive into the the details of what it was like working on this, I I guess it's safe to say you're a Michael Jackson fan? Well, yes, I am. I mean, certainly I I was, uh, certainly of his dancing when I was growing up, you know, Michael's world was so far from my own you know I was a trained ballet dancer and I know Michael had a great appreciation for ballet but ballet was not what he was famous for of course Um, so kind of very different project for me to work on super exciting and very um, you know the 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 catalog of music uh, that Michael left behind is just beloved by so many people you know through the world and um, I think it's always fascinating when you, when you get to explore the work of an artist that has, has connected so many different cultures and communities. Um, and that's one of the things that I think is so rewarding about seeing the show on Broadway and feeling that energy from the audience, Michael's music. For some, you know, kind of, kind of I suppose, dropped off the face of the earth a little bit around, you know, some of the slightly more um, complex parts of the discussion around Michael but what this show does is remind people I think how how brilliant this body of work is. I asked you about doing research on the city of Chicago when you were working on the Nutcracker. Michael Jackson's from Gary, Indiana, not too far away from here. Is that a similar thing when you were putting together MJ or do you try to stay away from learning too much about the subject? No I mean really the most fascinating part of the research um, for MJ the Musical, I think, really came from just talking to people who knew Michael and um, having conversations about, 
you know, his personality, about the way that he worked, the way that he put his music together, the way he wrote his music. You know, he wasn't a trained musician ever, so he didn't play instruments. Uh, he didn't write music down. It was just this this innate gift. Um, he was able to just hear the different layers of his, uh, the different track layers of the song, and uh, and kind of um, build it, build um, build music really through instinct. Um, and then, and similarly, just discovering, you know, the influences on him as a dancer, um, you know, from Fred Astaire to the Nicholas Brothers to to Bob Fosse, James Brown, Sammy Davis Jr., and how he really kind of built himself up as an artist from studying, you know, those greats. For, for me, that was... That that was the I think the most fascinating part of the process was kind of breaking all of those elements down and um, and seeing how um, how kind of he he reformed his his uh, inspiration and made something very unique and singular. Did you already know that about Michael? Those things you learned, like his dance influences. I'm, I didn't know. I I mean I I suppose you know now in hindsight I should have known because you know they the when you actually start to look at the shapes that keep showing up in his in his movement vocabulary, you know there are there are clearly uh, shapes there inspired by you know the tipping of the hat. Uh, or the, even the cane work of um, of uh, Fred Astaire, um, or even just the way that Michael moved his hands, and how clearly inspired by by Bob Fosse's choreography he was. And but you know the brilliance of Michael Jackson was that he could take all of these these elements, um, sort of the best from the best, and process them through his own his own body, and and that kind of long, elegant, sort of almost almost gangliness that he had physically was just so incredibly unique and then pulling all these elements together and creating this this accurate explosively accurate style is really I think what made him so unique so that's coming to Chicago in the summer and as we've already mentioned you're here fine-tuning your nutcracker for the Joffrey and I was reading about your like water for chocolate ballet this received critical praise earlier this year. You've got so many high-profile projects going on. Is it a challenge to compartmentalize all your creative endeavors? Yeah, I mean, I try to be really focused on one uh, the task at hand. So, like, I'm here this week working on the Nutcracker. I have a lot of things coming up that I'm sort of planning. But, you know, the way that I... I sort of keep myself kind of on track is by doing my best to focus on, you know, on the on the project that I'm that I'm really in. So this is Nutcracker Week, mm-hmm. and it's great to be back and and seeing the dancers here at Joffrey Ballet. I had a great time making this piece on them in 2016. Still, a lot of the dance, same dancers are here. Um, some new dancers too. So bringing breathing sort of fresh life and energy into the into the production. But yeah, it's just it's really it's really nice to be back, and uh, I'm so looking forward to seeing the performances at the Lyric. So then I have to ask: you've got all these other projects kind of going on at the same time, but what's next for you? Yeah, so well, uh, my ballet, like Quarter for Chocolate, is going to be performed by American Ballet Theatre. It was a co-production between the Royal Ballet and ABT, so they'll be performing that next year at the Met, so I'm going to be working on that with them. I'm making a new ballet for the New York City Ballet uh, in the spring, so that will open uh, the beginning of May. And um, 
we are going to be starting, we've already started auditions for the uh, the national tour of MJ the Musical, which opens here in Chicago. So um, lots, yeah, lots on the horizon. Christopher, it's always a pleasure. Thanks so much. Thank you very much. That's acclaimed choreographer Christopher Wielden. The Joffrey Ballet is presenting his version of the Nutcracker now through December 27th at the Lyric Opera House. You can find more information at joffrey.org. And MJ the Musical opens at the Niederlander Theater on August 1st, 2023. You can find details at broadwayinchicago.com. And a quick reminder... If you listen to the arts section every Sunday here on WDCB, make sure to visit the program's website over at theartsection.org. There you can find past episodes and individual features available to listen to on demand anytime you want, plus pictures and links that go along with all the features you hear on the program. Check out theartsection.org. <laughs> And you are listening to the Arts Section. I'm Gary Zydek. Joining me now remotely are the dueling critics, Carrie Reed and Jonathan Abarbanel. Good morning. Good morning, Good Gary. Morning. Good morning, Gary. If you're not quite ready to go see a holiday production or maybe you're not keen on them, there are some other options. This week, the dueling critics will be reviewing About Face Theater's world premiere, Mosque for Mosque. Written by Omer Abbas Salem, the company's website describes the play as, quote, a family comedy about a queer Arab-American Muslim man navigating his first real relationship while his relentlessly caring immigrant mother tries to find the perfect man for him to marry. And I know what the audience is thinking. Another play about a queer Arab-American man trying to find love? No, I'm just kidding. Um, but Mosque for Mosque was developed by About Face with help from Silk Road Rising and uh, kind of an alternative to a lot of what's out there. Jonathan, what did you think? Indeed, and I, I like the description of the, the mother is relentlessly, what did they say, relentlessly caring? Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> that certainly describes her. She's pretty fierce. Uh, this is a Syrian refugee family. Uh, living in 2016 uh, in a, a comfortable suburban home, presumably someplace in the Chicago area. Uh, Mom is a widow and an accountant, and she's an observant Muslim, although she's not at all a fundamentalist. Uh, teenage daughter Lena is a straight-A student, but she'd rather be a cheerleader than wear a hijab. And son Ibrahim, at 32, is a closeted gay man, still living at home, where he does most of the cooking and helps raise his sister. When he has his first serious relationship, mom and sister quickly find out, under the most embarrassing imaginable (laughs) circumstances, and everyone who's listening can paint a picture as to what that means. Uh, And when they find out things, well, really, essentially, they begin to spiral downward. Mom is fiercely devoted to her children, relentlessly devoted, as the press release said, and seems surprisingly, surprisingly accepting. But she also is fiercely controlling. And so without telling Ibrahim, she enrolls him in Mosque for Mosque, which, believe it or not, is a dating site for Islamic gay men. She uses a photo of him. He's 32 years old now. She uses a photo of him when he was 17 years old. 
she is determined if he's going to have a boyfriend, it needs to be an Islamic boyfriend. Well, you know, all of this has the makings of a pretty good farce, but that's not where playwright Omar Abbas Salem takes it. Uh, and he also, the playwright, also plays Ibrahim. Carrie, you want to jump in at that point? Yeah, you know, I think I think that this is a show that, in some ways, has the you know kind of the outlines of sort of the the immigrant family story we've seen before. Mom, you know, mom who's as you said, relentlessly, uh, what was the phrase? Relentlessly loving, relentlessly caring. Um, she's not so much concerned about the fact that Ibrahim is gay, but she definitely does not want him to be with somebody who is not Muslim. And his first serious boyfriend, who works at the same. Uh, small Christian college, presumably Wheaton College, because they wear T-shirts from Wheaton College. James is definitely, you know, a white Christian American. So I think that part of what's funny here is that, it, yes, she wants an arranged marriage. It, an arranged marriage to a gay man is fine, but she wants him to stay within the faith. I think there's also some uh, poignancy to the fact that it's very clear that Abraham has been carrying a lot for his family. His father died uh, when he was, I think, probably still a teenager or a very young man. Lena was quite young, his sister, so he's been a father figure to Lena, as well as helping his mother. And, you know, this is the, the classic story of the immigrant child who has been very, you know, very much the good person in the family, the good son, who's trying to stretch his wings, but doesn't really seem to know how. And I think both the comedy and some of the sadness in this show comes from the fact that he has been ill-equipped to find his own voice. He knows he needs to do it. He knows he needs to find his own way. But what we see is that he will overindulge in alcohol, or he has, you know, been, prior to James, he's been, you know, going on a lot of grinder dates, but really been seemingly afraid of commitment. And I think that's what I found most resonant in this, is that it's familiar, but there's also just enough twists in the story to really hold my interest. We, we really usually don't see a story like this about a, and you know, Gary referred to this in his, in his, <laughs> sarcastically in his introduction. Oh, don't tell me, not another right. play about a gay, you know, an Islamic gay man. No, there have been maybe two that I can think of, and, uh, and this is the second one. Uh, the play's focus definitely is Ibrahim finding his way as a gay man. And in a very poignant scene, a touching scene, he admits to his boyfriend that he needs uh, to get better at the relationship thing, mm -hmm. and he's not had any previous practice. But right. then he sabotages himself and his love affair because he isn't ready. It's not because he's not willing to accept himself in a private relationship as gay and accept the physical aspects of that. But he isn't ready to be identified in the wider world as gay, as homosexual. And in addition, he's also, it is suggested, has been cheating on the first committed mm -hmm. boyfriend he's ever had. And then, as if you didn't need another complication, <laughs> Mom decides to return to Damascus Despite the civil war there, and again, I remind listeners, the setting is 2016, so the war was still at its, uh, at its hot peak then. She decides to return to Damascus, uh, which leads to a final immigration-related complication, which serves as the play's, I will say, completely unexpected ending. And the resolution of some of the personal issues is left hanging. Yeah, and I'm, I'm not sure... I, you know, I'm still thinking about that ending and how it worked, but I feel like it would definitely have been a cheat to not address what was going on 
Uh, you say it started in 2016, it moves into 2017, which is when then the Muslim ban came in, and things got very complicated very quickly, even for people who, you know, had been in this country for a long time and held green cards. But I think that that's not necessarily the main focus of Salem's play. I think he really is trying to do a little bit of a, a twist on, the, on, you know, this family slice of life. They're sort of assimilated, sort of not. You know, in some ways, they're sort of on that gray area. As you mentioned, Lena, who is very bright and is not at all you know, shy the, about that, telling us how intelligent she is. That's the kid's sister. Who's the kid's sister, the, yeah. Like but, you know, they have this, high school. she has this whole thing where when she's coming back from cheerleading practice, which clearly her brother knows something about and mom does not, they have this little coded, you know, whistle or sound to each other, and he will throw her hijab outside so she can put it back on before she comes in with her hair wet from being in the showers after cheerleading practice. I mean, it all gets very, you know, convoluted, but it's also very, I think, very funny. And because it's rooted in a certain truthfulness, I loved the performances. I can say that. I think uh, particularly Rula Gardnier as, as Sarah, the mother, you know, she's not, she is, she's kind of smothering, but she's not monstrous. She's not, you know, she's, she's not a termagant. She's, she's obviously very much involved with her children and although I had some questions about the believability of her wanting to go to Damascus, particularly, as you mentioned, Jonathan, given the heat of the Civil War at that point, I think there is a suggestion, and I think it could be made even stronger within the play, that she's losing her own identity as, her, as she realizes her kids are moving away, and they are maybe becoming more, for want of a better word, Americanized or more, more willing to show her that they are not necessarily going to follow the traditional path. And so perhaps that's a bit more of the incentive to go back, even as dangerous as the old world might be. It might be a world where she feels a little bit more at home. Uh, I think that's a good point. Uh, and yet, as you also said just a couple of minutes ago, uh, the mother's story, returning to Damascus and so forth, and the immigration-related complication is not really the central focus Right. of this play. Uh, Mosque for Mosque is billed as a comedy, and, and yeah, and there is a lot of humor in it, and some of it is, is a lot of fun, but it very quickly becomes quite serious as Ibrahim's conflicted persona is revealed, and frankly, the ending, this complication, for me, just came out of deep left field. One imagines, I don't know for sure, but one can imagine that uh, Omar Abbas Salem has included some uh, autobiographical details in the play, but that does not necessarily provide a really effective dramatic structure. Uh, Mosque for Mosque has been workshopped several times since 2020, um, but now that it's finally in front of a nightly audience, a paying audience for real, I think that he needs to focus on the primary themes and actions, which you and I have talked about, Gary, and also stop describing it as a comedy. Uh, it's, you know, at, at, at most a mixture, what they call a dramedy, but it sure. certainly is not pure comedy. Uh, Salem is considerable writing talent, really, he really does. And I found the play engaging and mostly effective, but I think there's still some work to do in it. I also like the staging. It's at the Den Theater and the Bookspan Theater, where Haven has performed and Firebrand, if any of our listeners have been there. And so we're, it's not precisely in the round, but we are seated on either, sta uh, either side of the setting, which you know, recreates the home, and it feels very cozy. But it also feels, you know, very uh, 
on top of each other. And there's a line that I really love where he says, there's a little bit of a lie in everything she knows about me in talking about his mother. Like there's just a little bit of, you know, the, the sense that he must practice deception, whether to protect himself, whether to protect his mother. So that I think is really captured in this very intimate staging as well. So, and again, I think that that's something that's familiar to a lot of people who maybe have grown up in more traditional families, whether those are immigrant families or just more traditional, you know, faith-based families where you love everyone, but you don't want to tell them everything either. This production, it's a small cast player, and guided by Sophia Nayar, who is a nationally rising director, I think perhaps a star to be as a director. And uh, I noticed that she has worked several times with, uh, with Salem as a playwright, stuff that he has written and she has directed, that she does a good job. You mentioned uh, uh, Rula uh, Gardnier, or Gardnier, I'm not sure how she pronounces it, who plays the mother, and yeah, she made a strong impression on me, too. I think there's a lot of nuance in her movements. I loved it when she danced a little, Mm -hmm. when she was by herself and did a little dance, and also wonderful nuance in her face. And I'm glad you mentioned this scenic design by Stephen Abbott, Mm-hmm. Because the the uh, the bookspan theater at the Den is a difficult space. It's it's long and narrow, and essentially by defining a square in the middle as the stage and putting audience on either side of it, the scenic designer has uh, uh, reduced the distance from every seat to the stage. He's made it more intimate, and he's really focused the action on uh, on the scenic design. So I thought it was yeah. a very good. Uh, and, you know, Jonathan, you and I noted when we were at the Den, as some of our listeners may know, the Den's main theater is often primarily now used for stand-up comedy. Uh, just coincidentally, uh, the uh, comedian, Arab-American stand-up comedy, comedian Mo Amer, I believe he is Palestinian in descent, uh, was is perform, has been performing this last week. And he his audience was there in the lobby, along with the audience for Mosque for Mosque. So I felt it was really refreshing to see... Um, you know, a largely Middle Eastern audience, gather, or at least appeared to be a largely Middle Eastern audience, gathering for these two very different kinds of performances. And I think it shows um, the ways in which uh, the comedy world and theater has really grown and expanded. And I think part of that we can, you know, we can certainly thank Silk Road Rising, which is, as you mentioned, a partner in this production. Silk Road did a piece several years ago by uh, the Egyptian-American playwright Yusuf El-Gindi, called Ten Acrobats and the Amazing Leap of Faith. And this place sort of reminded me of that a little bit. It's a family, an Egyptian-American family, dealing with a son who is gay, a daughter who is, you know, questioning whether she wants to wear a hijab. It's not derivative in that sense, but I think you're correct, Jonathan, that there aren't a lot of plays like this. So even with some of the things that I found a little bit, uh, as you said, left field, perhaps, in the resolution of Mosque for Mosque, it's just so refreshing to see that these these works are being foregrounded and that they are being seen, not just by Arab-American or Muslim audiences, but other audiences as well. So it sounds like two recommendations for About Face Theater's Mosque for Mosque. It continues at the Den Theater through December 17th. Carrie, Jonathan, thanks so much. Oh, you're welcome, Gary. You're welcome. I'm Gary Zydek. This is the art section. 
It's officially slime time in Chicago. The New York-based Slumu Institute recently opened a 20,000-square-foot sensory playground in the city's River North neighborhood. The loft space is filled with all sorts of activities designed to stimulate your senses, but the focus is definitely on slime. People ask me all the time, what's your favorite slime to play with? And I'm like, what kind of mood am I in? This is Karen Rabinovitz, one of the co-founders of the Slumu Institute. I recently caught up with her and the company's other co-founder, Sarah Schiller, at the New Chicago location, which is at 820 Orlean Street, to talk about the journey to creating a communal slime playground. The initial idea for the slime concept was sparked in 2016 as Rabinovitz was coping with a challenging period in her life. About six years ago, I was going through a really horrible time in my life. I had experienced a lot of tragedy around loss and the deep grief and mourning really put me in a depression and I sort of tapped out. And during that time, I sort of didn't know if I would ever find my joy again. I couldn't imagine how my life would pick back up. And one day, a really close friend came over She was with her daughter. Her daughter at the time was 10 and had all of this handmade slime with her. And I said, oh my God, Maddie, I have to see your slime. I was aware of the cultural zeitgeist. I knew that there was a massive online phenomenon and community and billions of views on YouTube. The minute I sunk my hands into this slime, I was hooked. It was nothing like the slime I grew up with in the 70s. I grew up with the original Mattel in a garbage can slime. And it was incredibly soothing and you know yummy. And it smelled like Fruit Loops. And I was just immediately in my head, I was, I'm seven. I'm negotiating for one more bowl at the table with my mom. That was the only issue on my plate at that moment. And Four hours went by and Maddie and I were still just, you know, wrist deep playing on the floor. And when she was leaving, I thought this was the first time I really felt joy and had a real smile in two years. Where do I get more? So I became obsessed with slime, buying slime, and then I wanted to share my slime with Sarah. Sarah and I have been really good friends for the last 15 years. And I was like, this is the best thing for stress release ever. I had played with slime as a child also, this is Sarah Schiller, the other co-founder of the Slumu Institute. When Karen brought the slime of today over, it just blew my mind. The sense, the textures, uh, having two girls to play with the slime too, just added to that feeling of coming together and being connected with them. And those moments became really ch- cherished. And um, we started to talk about what can we do together to celebrate art, to celebrate slime, to bring joy, this joy that we were having, to more people. The two women worked on the concept for a couple years before unveiling the first iteration of the Slumu Institute. We felt like we could do a pop-up. We were like, let's do a pop-up for six months in New York City. Literally the day that we opened our doors, we looked at each other and said, this is more than a pop-up. We had 30,000 visitors our first month, but it wasn't just the number of visitors, it was the reaction that we saw. And the voraciousness. The voraciousness in the the children and families' faces when they came in, uh, that we knew we were onto something. And then if if you think about where we all came out of the pandemic, people need this more than ever. 
They need to get off their phones. They need to stop swiping. They need to connect with themselves. So connecting their brains to their uh, different senses and connect to each other, which is really talking, smiling, laughing, and, and playing. Because how many times do you go out and you see a family or friends at a restaurant and every single one of them is on their screens? And you're like, if you're out with somebody else, you're on your screen to each other, be present with each other. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to the arts section. I'm Gary Zydek. I'm talking with Sarah Schiller and Karen Rabinovitz, the co-founders of the Slumu Institute, an immersive sensory experience that just opened in Chicago. So we've been talking a lot about slime. Some of you might be wondering, what type of slime are we actually talking about? Some people listening without the visuals, they have like a preconceived notion of slime. So there is kind of a spectrum of the slime here. There's different types. So first of all, I would say our slime is not sticky. So I think a lot of people think of it as sticky goo and our slime is going to stick to itself so that when you're playing with it, it's not crawling all up and down your hands. And then we start to get into all the different textures. There's everything from a thick and glossy, which is just this beautiful ribbon of slime to our crunchier slimes that have bingsu beads in them or victory pellets. So it's, it's going to press and, and feel in your hands very, very different when you go from one vat of slime to the next. What's really interesting is that we find that different people respond to different slimes. So somebody might come in and think, butter slime is my favorite. And it's called butter slime because it's spreadable the way butter is and it feels really rich and buttery. But then halfway through the experience, they're like, no, 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 no. Floam is now my favorite. And it's because you get a different sensation. And sometimes I want things that are crunchy and really textured. Sometimes I want things that are really smooth that I could just sort of like kind of manipulate my hands like I'm stretching I'm coming together like a figure eight with my slime I'm stretching I'm coming together you know sometimes I want to lift it and watch it drizzle and that's a cloud slime so it's really mood dependent it's almost like well I don't know it's like what's your favorite thing to wear well what somebody might want to wear sweats one day and jeans another and a dress the next we've one of our one of our funniest stories is um, we had a dad that came in with his sons and he really didn't know that much about slime his kids had tried to make it he thought it was a gooey mess and got halfway through the space and discovered Floam Slime, which has these really lovely, like sort of softer, bigger beads in it. And um, when he realized that he couldn't get Floam slime, slime anywhere else, he took a chunk of it and put it in his pocket to take it home. He admitted that he stole the slime from us later on. And became an investor. And became an investor, <laughs> but we, we couldn't believe it. It was just, you know, he, he just didn't know and, didn't, and then had to have it. And this is a man in his 50s. <laughs> That's the best part. Another big part of the SLUMU Institute's mission is to create an inclusive and inviting environment for everyone. Our two core missions are around neurodiversity inclusion and mental health because we realize that those are things that actually impact everyone. And when we talk about our own personal connections to those things, somebody in the room always resonates with it. When you use the term neurodiversity, does that refer to like different ways to stimulate your mind? So for us, neurodiversity is different ways to look at the world and how you process information. 
So that can include uh, someone who's on the autism spectrum to someone who has ADHD to someone like my older daughter who has a rare genetic syndrome called Angelman syndrome. And we believe that everyone can add value and everyone is welcome here to play and have fun in whatever way that they want to interact with our world that we've created. If you're curious about the company's name, Slumu is the result of an online trend from a few years ago. We spent a long time thinking about a name and we knew we didn't want to be the Slime Institute because we knew we were about more. And at, the, at its core, we're about sensory play and sensory play will, has always been a thing and will evolve. So we'll always evolve into other elements of what is a sensory. And we were talking about it for a long time. And what about that whole trend that happened in 2017, where people were saying, replace the vowels of your name with OO, and that's your slime name. So Karen becomes Kuroon, Sarah is Suru, slime is Slumu. And the minute we heard it, we were like, I mean, game over. That's a world that could be a universe the way that Smurfs or Peppa Pig or you know anything else in that vernacular is a universe and that felt like it was right to us and if you look I mean you can't see on the radio but for those who are listening but if you look around you these are characters that we all see in the Slimoverse and that's our Chicago dog so you know that's our version of a Chicago hot dog but Slimoo style. Rabinovitz and Schiller aren't going to slow down anytime soon. In fact, their plans for slime domination are just getting started. We have uh, big plans, big ideas, big dreams. We want to open more slumu experiences throughout the U.S. and internationally. There's so many cities that we want to bring this to, and we feel actually I even need it. Uh, but we want to grow beyond that and take our Slumoverse and our world of Slumu characters to children's books, into an animated series, into the Pixar movie, into the metaverse, uh, so that no matter where you are, you can tap into the joy that we've created in these physical places. That was Sarah Schiller and Karen Rabinovitz. The co-founders of the Slumu Institute, the multi-sensory slime playground just opened in Chicago's River North neighborhood. You can find more information at slumuinstitute.com. That's S-L-O-O-M-O-O-Institute.com. I'll be home for Christmas. You you're tuned in to WDCB. I'm Gary Zydek. This is the arts section. Actor Max Greenfield has won over legions of fans from his time on the hit sitcom New Girl that aired for seven seasons starting in 2011. He currently stars in the CBS show The Neighborhood in addition to doing film work, but his current passion is writing children's books. He recently authored one called I Don't Want to Read This Book, and it was inspired by his experiences helping homeschool his kids during the pandemic. I caught up with Greenfield to talk about the new book. For this book, was there a, a moment uh, with your kids when the original idea for I Don't Want to Read This Book was born? For sure, yeah. You know, I it was in the beginning of lockdown during the pandemic, and I was tasked with uh, homeschooling my daughter which was worst-case scenario for everyone. And, and I thought, I'm going to use social media in the way that I think it was intended to be used, uh, 
I'm scared, I'm overwhelmed, and I feel very alone. I'm going to reach reach out to the internet people and right. see if there's anyone else feeling the same way. Right. And uh, took a took a quick picture of the two of us. Wrote Professor Greenfield, sent it out to the world, and it got this tremendous response. And that turned into like little videos that my daughter and I would do to sort of break up the day of homeschooling and to have fun with it. And it, it was during a very odd time, and all these people responded. And anyway, so during that time. Uh, I had an agent reach out to me and was like, everybody's responding to these videos. Do we think this is maybe something bigger than just, you know, Instagram videos? And I thought, well, what are you talking about? He goes, well, do you think maybe it's a podcast? And I go, it's definitely not a podcast. I can't talk for that long. <laughs> and then he goes, do you think it's a, uh, do you think it's a book? And I go, I can't write. I, I, there'll be a whole nother pandemic before I finish an actual book. And then he goes, well, what about a picture book? And I thought, huh, that's interesting. And so I thought about it for half a day, and I called him back, and I said, well, if I was going to write a picture book, it would be based on my own experience as a parent. Um, it would be called, I don't want to read this book, and it would be all the reasons why you don't want to read a book. And by the end of the book, the child will have read a book. Because, you know, I spend 30 minutes to 45 minutes with my kids in their rooms before they go to bed, asking them which book they want to read or if they want to read at all. And then I, you know, proceed to get lawyered for that remaining time before they have to go to bed. <laughs> and so I'm like, well, what's the point of this? And what's the way around it? So I thought this would be an interesting children's book that like maybe, I don't know, maybe it's an interesting idea. And so my agent said, can I go pitch this? And I said, oh, great, have fun thinking nothing would ever come come of it. And then two days later, he called me and he goes, Penguin would like to make the book. And I thought, oh, my God, <laughs> now i got to write this thing. Um, but And let me tell you, that has been uh, – I have written things in the past, mainly screenplays, that have gotten a much different reaction. Um, I'm still waiting to hear on all of them. <laughs> And then we wrote the book, and it was it was so true to my own experience as a reluctant reader, and I had been dealing with it on the parenting side too. So it it provided two really interesting angles to come at it with, to come at it from, and uh, I just had such an incredible experience writing this book, and feel like it, it's probably the truest work that I've ever done. My wife and I have a, a little one at home, so we've been reading a lot of uh, baby books and board books. And for me, I'm fascinated, after not looking at children's books for a long time, reading these out loud, and and I kind of wonder, you know, sometimes what the author is thinking. Uh, your book is probably best uh, suited for a slightly older child, but do you have to change your mindset when you are writing for a younger audience, and do you have to try to put yourself in a, a kid's position? I feel like I am a younger audience. Mentally. <laughs> um, physically, I'm physically I'm an old, 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 very old audience. Mentally, though, young, young as can be. Right, um, right. Not. <laughs> bear, I mean, I really, I really feel like I wrote this book for my peers. Um, but it is interesting, you know. You bring up reading these books and and picture books in general. You know, the thing about picture books that's really interesting. Uh, is that 
they're really meant to be conversation starters, or the majority of them are. Um, some of them are just really fun experiences. Uh, and I think I tried to make this both of those things. One, I wanted to make it a really fun experience, but also I, I do think it's a real conversation starter. And as, you know, congratulations on, on your first child. Oh, thanks. As they get older um, and and you're able to really start to have conversations and, and, and experience and, and watch them experience certain things that you're going to then want to have conversations with them about. Um, it, uh, these books become real tools and, um, and I'm hoping, and there so far the response we've gotten, uh, mainly from teachers has been that, uh, it is working somewhat as a tool in the classroom and, and, and with kids, especially those ones who are reluctant readers uh, and are maybe, you know, getting to a place where they're unwilling to participate in certain things because they're like, I don't want to read it. <laughs> and you, you kind of alluded to this, but... Uh, like on the flip side of like thinking about how kids are receiving it and while you were writing this were you also thinking about how parents were going to be reading this out loud to them yeah so i you know one of the cool things about the book and and specifically as an actor i wanted to i wanted it to be a real performance piece um you know some of my favorite books uh specifically children's books that are that you get to perform are my favorite um the Book with No Pictures by B.J. Novak is such a great book that I love. Um, and that's one where the, you read to your children. Um, the day the crayons qu quit, you get to sort of act as each crayon as you're going through that book. And this is written from, you know, the reader becomes the narrator of the book. Um, the first page is, I don't want to read this book, you know. Um, and it goes on from there, and it gives you all the reasons why reading is something that they don't want to do, but it's really you saying these things. So if you're a child who hasn't quite fallen in love with reading in the way that they're so often expected to, uh, you might have a take on this book where you feel like, oh, this book is articulating some feelings that I'm having towards reading that I don't think that I've felt like I was allowed to have. Um, conversely, I think what really becomes interesting to me is when you have a parent or a teacher who reads the book to a child who is feeling that way, because then it allows them to see a parent or a teacher, an authority figure, say all the things that they are feeling or that they want to say and don't think they're allowed to. And I think, or my hope is, is that it takes some of the stress and anxiety out of the pressure uh, to be a good reader or to fall in love with it. Thanks so much for making time to, to talk with me. Yeah, thank you for having me. I so appreciate it. That was Max Greenfield. He's the author of the new children's book, I Don't Want to Read This Book. It's available everywhere books are sold.
You're listening to the Arts Section. I'm Gary Zydek. And this is saxophonist Dave Koz playing the Christmas Waltz of his new holiday album, Christmas Ballads. The 11-time Grammy nominee has made performing holiday music a tradition. He recently embarked on the 25th annual Dave Koz and Friends Christmas Tour. It's rolling into Chicago this week. We'll be playing at the Chicago Theater on Thursday. I recently caught up with Kaz on the road to talk about his appreciation for Christmas music. So you're in the uh, the midst of your uh, Christmas tour, which will come through Chicago on Thursday, December 8th. And this is the uh, 25th anniversary of the first Dave Kaz and Friends Christmas tour. And I was reading something about the, the first one. Uh, the origins of this really come from kind of a, a somber place. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's kind of a, a, an interesting story. I was uh, interviewing a wonderful piano player by the name of David Benoit, who's an incredible artist in our format, He's been doing music for so many years. And uh, I host a radio show, and I was interviewing him. And it was in March of 1997, and he had just lost his mom. And uh, about two weeks earlier, I had uh, lost my father rather suddenly. So we were on this doing this interview, and we were sort of commiserating with each other, and he just came out with the idea. He said, hey, what about this? What about going out and doing a few Christmas shows and later on this year, and that way working through our emotions, and maybe we could inspire some people in the process and lift some spirits up and lift our own spirits up. And I said, that's a great idea, David. And that was our first year, 1997. We did probably a half a dozen shows. I think that they were not very well not very well attended, but it was a good show, and the promoters liked it, and would uh, they invited us back the next year. And we started to expand our uh, our cast a little bit, and we came back the next year, and then they invited us back another year after that. We started to expand the show, and it's just grown ever since. Never in a million years uh, would I have thought that we would be doing <laughs> doing this for 25 years and making it to this big anniversary. But it's really been a uh, wonderful experience. I love spending the holidays uh, out on the road. I love playing this music. And any time that we can get a chance to, to come to Chicago during the holidays, because there is no place in our country that feels more holiday than Chicago. <laughs> we're, we're, we're thrilled to, to uh, any time that we can, to take the stage of the Chicago Theater. I'm sure you say that about every city. I don't. I promise you, I don't. Have you gone on, has there been a holiday tour every year since 1997? Yeah, it has. Even in COVID, in the year 2020, we didn't tour, but we did a live stream, which was very successful because a lot of people uh, have come to our shows for years and years and years. And I remember in the early years, people bringing their kids, seeing their kids, and now their kids are grown up and they're bringing their kids. It's become sort of like a a family tradition for a lot of people. Um, And I think the consistency of doing it year after year and also the fact that it's not the same show. We change our cast every year. We change the repertoire every year. Um, Hopefully the feeling of the show is the same, but uh, what you see on stage changes from year to year. And I think that that has kept us having this ability to, to, to do this for so many years. But I'm extremely grateful to uh, our audiences in Chicago for all these years uh, supporting our, our Christmas show. It's it's a really great feeling, i got to say. Yeah, so this time of year can uh, mean different things for, for different people. 
What do you think it is about holiday music that people connect with so passionately? In such a, especially right now, everything, there's, there's so much new and so much change, and things change overnight, and um, I think that's, that's the one thing about the holidays that's really special for a lot of people, and that is that it doesn't change, that you want to hear the same music every year, you want to have the same uh, decorations, uh, the same food, the same, you know, it's a very nostalgic time of the year, and it, it, it kind of brings out the best in people, too, a little bit more of a simple way of life, and not so fast-paced, people slow down, they focus on uh, their families and their friends and getting together and uh, celebrating, and the music is just a huge part of that, too. Um, I kind of like to call Christmas music sort of musical comfort food. We, we want to have the same uh, song, even though maybe we've heard these songs hundreds of times. We just, when they come on, the classics, and even the classic artists like Nat King Cole and, and Ella Fitzgerald and Frank Sinatra, when we hear those voices, it just brings the holiday feeling right away. And so that's what, what's really great about being a musician at this time of year. These songs just hold up. There's so much meat on the bones that you can you can uh, push and pull them in so many different directions, and they always will deliver because it's such great pieces of music. Many of them were written in the, the era of the Great American Songbook by some of the greatest songwriters of all time. So these are songs like White Christmas and uh, Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas, the Christmas songs, and just incredible pieces of music and then you got the old real going way way back you know 200 years to songs like silent night and oh holy night uh the more religious side of the holiday so it makes makes it easy for people like me that that do this for so many years in a row that these songs are so great Happy Christmas, War is Over of Kaz's new album, Christmas Ballads. So will you be performing most of the songs off this album on this tour? Yeah, we do a few songs, a few selections from the new album. Christmas Ballads uh, was sort of our 25th anniversary companion piece uh, with the original cast members, David Benoit, Rick Braun, and Peter White. Two of them are on this tour. And we went into the studio and took a slice of the holidays that I had not yet uh, explored. And that is a little bit more of the romantic, the more intimate side of the holidays. This is when all the guests have left and the dishes are back in the cupboard. And it's uh, maybe you and a special person in front of a roaring fireplace with a nice glass of wine. That's what this album really complements. So it's all ballads. It's all very lush. It's very romantic. And that's one thing you, the, the holidays can be for a lot of people. As I mentioned uh, earlier, you'll be in Chicago Thursday, December 8th. And I know you've come through town uh, numerous times over the years. Uh, what are some of your favorite Chicago memories, or do you have like a favorite story? Well, it's always about the food for me. you got to <laughs> have some Garrett's popcorn. Okay. okay. Gotta, that's like part of the whole experience. And i got to have a Chicago hot dog for sure <laughs> when I come there. Uh, but I love wa- walking. We usually get there uh, in the morning. This tour is, uh, I believe it's 24 shows in 23 cities in 29 days. So 
it's every day a different city. So we're coming from another Midwestern city. Usually get to Chicago in the morning. I'll uh, you know put on the, my, my parka and I'll go out and, and walk Michigan Avenue and window shop and go in stores. And that's when I say like there's no more Christmassy city in the United States than Chicago because everywhere you look, it just is so festive. People are in such a great mood, and there's so much thing, so many things to see. You know, if you can brave the cold, that is. Uh, there's no place that I'd rather be at Christmas time than Chicago. Mm-hmm. And then we get to wrap it with the, our show at the Chicago Theater, which is so historic. And just backstage, you look at the walls and who signed the walls over the years that that have graced that stage, and it's kind of part makes you very uh, feel great, and the other part makes you really nervous because you realize who has been on that stage before, and you don't want to be the one that, you know, drops the ball. <laughs> yeah, it is a tremendous venue. And you mentioned your parka, so I know you're from California. It's uh, It was 26 when I walked into the studio today, so are you ready? Are you ready for this oh, cold? Oh, my. Okay. All right. Thank you for the warning. Because <laughs> we're actually in Florida right now, and it's sunny as can be, and warm as can be. So, uh, but... Personally, and you, you, you're right, I, I grew up in Los Angeles, so I'm, I'm not a cold weather person. <laughs> but I really enjoy it when, when we come to the Midwestern cities and the East Coast cities because it just is that, that feeling, that nip in the air that, that kind of makes you feel more Christmassy in a way. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Well, uh, 25 years in the books, are you going to keep it going and looking to the future? Well, I, yeah, as I mentioned, I never thought that we would get here. Uh, to this milestone, but we did, and people still are coming out, uh, thankfully, uh, for the show. We've had great attendance uh, so far on this tour. The people who are coming are really into the show and really into the music, so um, I didn't make a formal uh, declaration that we're going to do year 26, but I'm, I'm thinking about it, and I think if we did, we would we would retool this, this show um, reinvent it in some way uh, to make it something unique and special moving from this point on. I don't know about another 25 years, but maybe another five years. Okay, fair enough. Dave Kaz and Friends is coming to uh, the Chicago Theater on December 8th. Dave, thanks so much. It's my pleasure, Gary. Thank you so much for having me on your show, and we look forward to uh, seeing you guys at that historic venue to celebrate the holidays, and I want to wish you and your listeners a very, very happy holiday season ahead. That saxophonist Dave Kaz, the 25th anniversary Dave Kaz and Friends Christmas Tour, will be at the Chicago Theater Thursday, December 8th. You can go to msg.com for more information. And that's going to wrap up this edition of the Arts Section. But remember, you can always find more arts and culture online by visiting the program's website over at theartssection.org. There you can find past episodes and individual features available to listen to on demand anytime you want, plus pictures and links that go along with all the features you hear on the show. My name is Gary Zydek. I hope you'll join me again next Sunday morning at 8 a.m. right here on 90.9 and 90.7 FM for another edition of the Arts Section. Until then... I hope you have a great week. Thanks for listening.